Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for January 9th, 2020, the Bomb Iran edition. We've had a Bomb Iran edition before, actually. As I say that, we've done that before. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I am in Washington, D.C., where I'm joined by no one but in New Haven, Connecticut, on the campus of Yale University, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello. That was such a wind-up. It seemed like you were going to say something more exciting, I, and then you didn't. I had, oh, well. I had exactly the same reaction. I thought, my <laughs> gosh, she's really reaching into the old bag of tricks. I was like, trying to think oh, if I could think I? of something I'm interesting some... to say about you after all these years, and I have nothing left yeah. to say about you. You're just well, I mean, he, he used the word sinecure a couple of weeks ago, and we all rained down on him with the fury of a thousand suns. Uh, that voice, back after a trip Elsewhere to beyond, I don't even know where you were, John. I think I'm about to find out. Is John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes? Hello. Hi. I was on. I was. I was on break. I was in uh, Tennessee and Utah, a place both places with mountains. Wait, what was the first place? I didn't hear. T- Tennessee. I was in Knoxville. I love it when John says Knoxville. When he says Knoxville, where the rest of us East Coast people say Knoxville. John gives it a, a good Knoxville pronunciation. Uh, welcome back. On today's GabFest, are we at war with Iran? Are we about to be at war with Iran? Are we done with our war with Iran? Then the unsettled state of the Democratic primary race, presidential race, a month before voting starts. Then what is happening with the impeachment trial? Plus, we will, of course, have cocktail chatter. What what's happening between the U.S. and Iran. So John just teased us with his presence there. He actually uh, will be back for our later segments, but he could not join us for the segment we're about to jump into. We are joined by Suzanne Maloney, who is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and an Iran expert. Suzanne, it's been a nerve-wracking week for Americans, probably for Iranians, and for people throughout the Middle East. Uh, We had... So many things have happened since we recorded, since the drone strike that killed Kasim Soleimani. Um, but both sides seem to have de-escalated or seem to be de-escalating. So are we at war with Iran? Well, you could argue we've been at war with Iran in some way, shape, or form, at least since the 1980s, perhaps dating back to the seizure of the embassy in November 79. Um, But we're in a different phase, I think, of what has been a long conflict and often a war that only exists in the shadows. What we're seeing now is much more akin to a conventional war, and at least uh, a couple of days ago, it looked like it was about to morph into something that might be very reminiscent of the kind of conflicts that the United States has waged in Iraq in Afghanistan with such devastating consequence. But is this an actual de-escalation or is this just everyone sort of conveniently saying, we're just not going to do this right now, but check back with us in a month and we'll be doing some damage here and there in some other fashion? 
Yeah, I, I saw it described as the beginning of the end. Um, I think we're actually at the beginning of a new phase, which is going to be a long, ugly, and unpredictable phase of conflict and confrontation with some quiet periods, but a lot of unpredictability about exactly where the next strike uh, or when the next escalation will happen. What are potential options? What are the ways in which it could escalate from either side? Well, I mean, first and foremost, I think we're going to see more trouble in Iraq. Um, there's a, an effort to try to push the United States out of Iraq. Um, that is a, an objective of the Iranians. And now, thanks to the fact that we didn't bother to consult the Iraqis when we decided to take out a, a senior Iranian military commander on their territory, as well as an Iraqi militia leader, uh, there's a lot of unhappiness with our presence there. And I think it's probably we're on a, a road to a some kind of a drawdown of our presence, which will have real implications for the, the campaign to contain and deter any future resurgence of ISIS. It will have real implications for the stability of Iraq and the continuation of a government that can actually run the country. Um, the Iranians will have lots of opportunities to push back against the United States and to try to retaliate without necessarily taking ownership in the way that they did on Wednesday um, with the missile strikes on, on U.S. military positions in Iraq. And that can happen almost anywhere across the region because they have proxies and assets. They've also struck over the course of history as far flung as Argentina, South Asia, Southeast Asia, Bulgaria. They have uh, a lot of uh, capability and it's very far dispersed. I am worried about uh, Iran pulling out completely of the nuclear accord um, from 2015. And, I, you know, you can trace this back to President Trump's disavowal of that accord. And I wonder how much of this um, new, unsteady, unpredictable phase you attribute to that dynamic. I think it can be entirely traced to the decision in May of 2018 by President Trump to walk away from the deal, and even more so to May of 2019 when he decided to try to ratchet up pressure and bring Iranian oil revenues and exports down to zero. That was a bridge too far. It was something the Iranians couldn't try to muddle or manage through. And we saw them turn almost on a dime from a kind of watchful waiting and, and trying to manage the situation to striking back in a very calibrated and incremental fashion to try to generate some diplomatic urgency. My own assessment is that the nuclear agreement, um, while the product of an enormous amount of work, uh, rightly contested on all sides and all parts of the world, is on its last legs. It's not going to be possible to return to status quo ante, and we're more likely to face an urgent nuclear crisis with Iran than we are to actually get back into full compliance with that agreement. Do you think that Iran is going to conclude uh, th that it's its major leverage in the region will be to have a nuclear weapon. And so that's going to be, it's going to really work on that development because it, it recognizes that the U.S. can't be, will not be a willing partner in, in allowing them to not have a nuclear weapon. So they might as well just go ahead and develop one. Well, I think that was a conclusion they made actually before the revolution. It was the Shah who started the Iranian nuclear program, civilian at the time, but with an intent uh, always towards something else. Um, the Iranians mothballed it at the time of the revolution, but then very quickly reconstituted it. Not coincidentally, because they were invaded by Saddam Hussein, who, of course, had his own nuclear weapons program. Um, and so this is, I think, always been the Iranian assumption. They need the ultimate deterrent. They uh, feel very much encircled by American allies 
and by hostile powers. And so there has been a really long-term investment in these capabilities. The nuclear deal had the positive effect of putting some constraints on that, putting some brakes on that. But ultimately, it never really was going to um, change the Iranians' mind in that investment. We've seen new intelligence coming out that suggests that, you know, the program was more advanced than we appreciated, and that they may have continued working on the sorts of things they weren't supposed to be working on. The thing I don't understand about sanctions is, so so every time, and I'm a total layperson here, keep reading, oh, we're ratcheting up sanctions, we're ratcheting up sanctions. How far can they be ratcheted? And is is the U.S.'s position so dominant, at least over the financial system, so dominant that the U.S. can effectively choose to prevent anybody from doing any business at all with Iran? I mean, is is Iran in a situation where if the U.S. chooses, we can literally prevent them from exporting a, a drop of oil, importing, you know, anything of value to the country? Well, they're always going to be able to engage in smuggling and barter trade and lots of other sort of creative means to get both their oil out and to get some necessary essential products into the country. But the simple reality is that um, the U.S. does have a dominant position in the international financial system. Um, the authorities that were put in place after 9-11, nothing to do with Iran originally, um, were then turned toward uh, dealing with proliferation as well as broader terrorist threats and apply to Iran in a really um, innovative um, and effective way, first initially by the Bush administration with with real effect by the Obama administration. And there was a lot of doubt about whether we could go it alone uh, under the Trump administration with the active opposition of all the rest of the world who are re relatively ready to do business in Iran. Um, what this experiment has showed is that the U.S., even without the support of allies and partners, is able to essentially sever a country from the international financial system and make that stick. So even if China wants to do a ton of business, even if Russia wants to do a ton of business, India wants to do a ton of, I mean, I don't know if they do, that they just can't. Well, they could, but they'd risk, they have to make a choice between doing business in Iran and doing business in the United States. And frankly, Iran is not that attractive of a market, um, particularly at a time where there's a surfeit of oil exports and production around the world. Um, so, you know, this is not a choice between China and, and the U.S. market. It's a choice between a country of 80 million, which is appealing, well-educated, has a, a lot of growth potential, but also has a, a tremendous amount of dysfunction in terms of the economy, regulatory blockades, things like this. And so, you know, for a lot of firms and, and entities around the world, when they saw the Trump administration begin to take aim at the nuclear deal, um, they began to walk away preemptively simply because it just wasn't worth it to them to take the risk of in any way getting crosswise with the Treasury Department. So when we think about the tragedy of this um, lost nuclear accord, if indeed you're right about its slim prospects for being resurrected, if you go back to, you know, the Obama administration's agreement and the period before the Trump administration walked away, Iran was not acting in the way that a lot of people in the West like ideally wanted, right? They were still interfering in Syria and Lebanon and trying to increase their regional influence and, you know, funding terrorism and acting like uh, Islamic theocracy in a way that scares Westerners or makes people think of Iran as continuing to be this very hostile presence. 
Does that mean that President Trump's skepticism about Iran is legitimate? Like, should we have expected Iran to take more steps toward good behavior in the League of Nations? Or was it unreasonable to think they were going to more quickly walk themselves back? I'm just, I always struggle with how to think about that period and Iran's response to being in the accord, but not exactly behaving like a responsible nation. Well, that's, I think, the fundamental paradox that we have today that, you know, we had a, an agreement that was working but didn't solve the problems that were outside the scope of the agreement that were never intended to be addressed directly by the agreement. Do you simply junk the agreement or do you find other ways to deal with the problems that you're facing from Iran? This administration actually had an opportunity to try to um, devise a, a follow-on agreement with the Europeans, at least, that might have tried to press the Iranians on at least some areas where the deal had fallen short. The deal didn't address Iran's missile development, for example. Um, and this was something that was pursued pretty intensively in the early months of the administration with at least some resulting support from the Europeans. When push came to shove, um, I think the president was just fixated on fulfilling a campaign promise. He also, I think, sees that Iran is is pretty good politics for him domestically, at least up, up till now. Um, and, and there just wasn't any real uh, interest or effort in investing in what it would have taken to try to develop a, a real negotiating track with the Iranians on everything that was outside the deal. How much, if at all, do you think what we're doing with Iran is because it is very convenient to have an enemy and we don't have any convenient, we don't have any other major enemies that are troubling us right now. And Iran is, is the easiest one to pick out, to demonize and to, to attack. Well, Iran's been, uh, you know, a sort of cartoonishly convenient adversary since 79. Everybody at that time um, was galvanized around the hostage crisis. More recently, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad became a sort of, you know, Saturday Night Live figure of mockery. Um, and, and Iran plays that role. Unfortunately, its government plays that role very effectively. But I also think that, you know, what we're seeing is really driven by a a theory of the case about how to handle a recalcitrant power and how, how the U.S. needs to kind of retake the dominant role in the Middle East and, and that it's the, the frustration with the Obama administration's unwillingness to challenge Iran as it began to expand its influence and become very directly engaged and successfully engaged in military conflicts in Syria, in Iraq, and also, of course, in Yemen. Um, and this administration believes that we have such overwhelming conventional military superiority that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be restrained in using it. We should push back against the Iranians. And they believe that if you push back really hard against the Iranians, they will, in fact, retreat. We'll have to see if that works out for them. Do you think that the United States or the world is safer with Qasem Soleimani dead than it was with him alive? I think the world is safer without Qasem Soleimani. I don't think that the world is safer as a result of the strike that we undertook in the way that we undertook it with the very shifty set of justifications the administration has utilized and without any kind of contingency planning around the, the inevitable ramifications that have followed in its wake. Wait, so sorry, what's the distinction? Make that distinction more. So, so but he's a bad influence, malevolent, maleficent person, but the, the methodology has ripple effects that are 
It, ma- it make makes perfect worse. sense that he's been on a kind of list of targets dating as far back as, as the uh, second term of the Bush administration. Um, he is a critical commander, and while Iran has a pretty deep bench of security force leadership uh, with a lot of experience in, in, in battle, um, you know, Soleimani had a unique role, and his uh, the fact that we were able to get him on what is essentially his home turf, I think, is a is a pretty showy demonstration of American might. But the reality is that you have to think through the second and third order effects of any action that you take. That's what the military is incredibly skilled and, and um, well uh, well situated to do, and it just doesn't appear to be clear that this administration utilize that kind of typical planning process that really um, thought through and, and built up, uh, you know, the force protection, for example, around uh, U.S. military presence in Iraq, for example, that they thought through the implications for the Iraqi government and whether or not we would, in fact, then be pushed out of Iraq. Um, all of these things could have been addressed in a way if one was really serious about trying about focusing on Soleimani as potentially a way of weakening Iran's influence uh, in the region. Uh, it could have been done in a way that demonstrated, I think, a more uh, coherent and effective policy process and, and minimize some of the backlash. Instead, what we have is the worst possible scenario, which is, you know, a, a situation of what I think is going to be very uh, sustained chaos uh, and we have not reassured our allies in the region. We have not really accomplished a, a significant um, foreign policy objective. The question is for me and for I think a lot of others is whether, you know, to what extent the kind of domestic um, positive boost that the president sees in his base at this time when he's under pressure um, may, ha- may, for him at least, offset some of the negatives of what it has brought around the world. I mean, I just want to add to that to think about this from a legal standpoint for a minute that, you know, we just assassinated a government official, high up government official. This is a step beyond uh, killing, assassinating, whatever you want to call it, people who are non-state actors, which the, you know, George W. Bush administration did after 9-11, which the Obama administration continued. That was supposed to be a line. Um, There was like a real recognition that it means something different to assassinate a government official that that puts are government officials at risk abroad or, you know, wherever that it, you know, changes the calculus for our allies? And so I feel like that's both just like a, a legal moral point to make and then also one that has strategic implications. Do you guys think, do either of you think there's any chance that there will be evidence presented that will assure the American public that this was not an assassination, that this was a legitimate act of self-defense as part of or that they were engaged in a war and this was a legitimate military act as part of a war? Um, I've read various sort of uh, legal arguments on both sides that suggest that, you know, we don't need to have had an absolute degree of imminence in order to justify this action from a legal perspective, which isn't the same as from a policy or political perspective. You know, what we've heard from the briefing from senior administration officials on the Hill 
suggests that they haven't really come up with a persuasive narrative, even for senior members of the Republican Party on the Hill. So I'm not convinced they're going to be able to come up with a, a persuasive narrative. It's notable that Mike Pence had announced that he was going to give a major policy speech on Iran this coming Monday. And instead, what we saw is he quickly canceled it after the backlash uh, on the Hill. So I, I think they're still kind of working out their story. And unfortunately, um, that's not the way these things should happen. Suzanne Maloney of the Brookings Institution. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Slate Plus members, of course, get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. What a great thing to do in the new year. Get yourself a Slate Plus membership. So many good things. You missed my amazing story from last week if you're not a Slate Plus member. Amazing story, right, Emily? Totally amazing story. Amazing story. Uh, great so conversation generator story. Yes, that is that is true. I, I myself use it to generate conversation. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Today we're going to talk about the morning show, also known as the John Dickerson story. No, the Apple. What is it called? Not. Apple TV. Apple Plus. It's called TV Apple show. TV. Apple TV. The Apple TV story. It is not the John Dickerson story. I didn't mean that, John. <laughs> Just plain. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to hear that conversation. The next presidential debate in the Democratic race is January 14th. There are only five candidates of the 24 who have been in the race who have qualified for that debate. We are down for this debate to Biden, Sanders, Buttigieg, Warren, and Klobuchar. Cory Booker and Andrew Yang have not qualified. Mike Bloomberg has not even tried to qualify. Julian Castro dropped out this week and threw his support to Elizabeth Warren. The race is, is it, it either is wide open or it's narrowing? I don't even know. John, <laughs> it's a weird period. We have Sanders thriving post-heart attack. Biden's still solidly kind of in front. Warren, who's lost her mojo. The pundit class trying desperately to make the case for Klobuchar. What are the fundamentals of the race as we are getting down to the moment, getting into the crucible? 
Well, I think, and you, and and uh, and the Buttigieg boomlet uh, bounces on. Um, I continue to be interested in Bernie Sanders supporters, which we saw in the last race in 2016. We see it again. There's a there's a firmness and solidity of his of his supporters that is different than any other candidates. Even Elizabeth Warren, though there's overlap in their policy positions, um, and that matters with the state of the race right now. But it also matter because he, he will hang on even if he doesn't get the the number of delegates, and he'll have a role to play. And so, the longer he's in the race uh, as a viable candidate, which he certainly is now, having raised a, a beaten everybody in the last quarter of fundraising, it, w- it means he's going to have more throw weight, even if he doesn't get the nomination. So that that's one thing that matters, I think, no matter what. He raised 34.5 during the fourth quarter uh, million. Buttigieg raised 24.7, Biden 22.7, and Warren 21.2. That that Sanders money is is amazing, and it's also a sign of support. But I think the, the pundit class with Klobuchar, I wonder what you guys make of that and where that comes from. Uh, I have a theory, but I've talked long enough. Well, I think there's been this question about the whole selection process, right? I mean, partly because candidates of color have been not making the thresholds for reaching the debate. And I think there's just this sense that Democratic voters are not choosing them in large enough numbers. And so I think David Leonhardt and a few other people have been as pundits saying, okay, well, what if we went back to a world in which party elders, the folks who Hmm. used to convene in back rooms, smoke-filled back rooms, had a larger say in this process. Like, what if all the Democratic congresspeople or governors were choosing the candidate? And when you start thinking that way, you imagine someone like Klobuchar having more appeal, certainly than like Andrew Yang, who has captured some voters' imagination. And so I think it's... um, particular recognition of Klobuchar's strength as this Midwestern senator who's trying to make a more moderate and kind of pragmatic argument for how she would conduct the presidency, but then also some nostalgia about a just different selection process that isn't as subject to the whims of the voters and to celebrity and like media coverage, these ineffable um aspects of politics that are frustrating to people who I think are trying to think through or, or wish politics was more rational. Can, can I make a slight amendment to that, which is you began with this premise that Klobuchar has been knocked out of the race because, well, the voters are not interested in Klobuchar. The voters haven't done a thing. There have been no voting. There hasn't been. We're a month away from voters doing anything. There's been polling which is a right. some kind of proxy for something. And then there's been fundraising, which is not at all a proxy for voting. It's a proxy for some intensity of support and effectiveness as a fundraiser. So it's it's not quite fair to say that this is a voter-driven, that the, that, that the voters haven't expressed anything. It's an attempt to undermine a system which chooses for celebrity, for ability to generate media coverage rather than something either electability or uh, effectiveness in office. So that's my So, John, I mean, you've obviously thought about this a lot. I mean, David, you're right. I was using polls as a proxy for voters, and that's really not quite the same thing. But, John, I mean, if you were designing the ideal primary process, like, do you have a thought-out sense of what it would be? I mean, I I just find it really confusing. Yeah, God love you for asking that question. So it's it's, – 
you know, what parties want is different than what a country wants. Parties want their ideas to go forward, and whoever controls the party wants that process to go forward. And there's always a wrestling over who actually controls the parties. Parties have gotten a great deal weaker, and the Democratic Party has just weakened itself more by reducing the power of superdelegates. Um, in a perfect world, what you would want is both the voice of the people and you want the irrational voice of the people. Okay, so you want people who have passions and push the system because passions and pushing the system is how you get social change, whatever your goal is for social change, whether you're a liberal or conservative. Politicians are risk averse. And the idea of the politician who says we must go forth in this direction and, and pulls the country along, it doesn't usually happen that way. They are more facilitators and conductors of social movements. And those social movements are full of passion and they're not, you know, perfectly reasoned. So you don't want to take out the madness of the of the population. But you also have a second piece, which is that you can't have a car that is all, uh, you know, where you have this, this incredible fuel for the car, but the car isn't built very well. So if you have a candidate who doesn't have the skills and attributes necessary to convert that social passion into actual durable and long-lasting, which is to say not by executive order, but through legislation and other things that are durable and long-lasting, then all you would do is create a system that generates persistent frustration. And so you need to have some system for selecting for those sets of attributes that would give a person success within the system. And that's where superdelegates and the back rooms and those kinds of forces used to select and filter for people who had some of the skills that would be necessary to do that two-part thing. But, John, I think you begin with a false premise that parties exist to advance some set of ideas or beliefs. We have seen with President Trump that the Republican Party, as it exists in 2020, the kind of ideas that it is pushing forward, the ideas it believes, has practically nothing to do with the Republican Party and the ideas it, it said it believed in in 2013 or in 2007, or in 2001, or in 1989. That there is very little continuity. Because you see, if you have somebody who, in Trump's case, is an incredibly charismatic mobilizer of people, that the ideas are actually some yeah. kind of irrelevant. But, and so, and so I, don't, I don't think, I don't think that, that, that the, the, party, the party ideas have much valence at all. But you're making my case for me. What I was talking about is when the parties are I'm weakened not. as they are. <laughs> when the parties are weakened as they do now, they don't have the function that, that I was previously saying they should have to, in order to create this mix for the platonic ideal of a of a selection process. Parties are weak now. And as a result of their weakness, they have no ability to influence the process. And so what you have is a purely uh, candidate-to-the-people connection. And by the way, that used to be thought of as a as a beneficial thing for democracy um, because you had situations where the people were kind of shut out of the process. And we know all of the bad things that happened as a result of that. So I'm not saying that people should be shut out again. What we want is, it seems to me, a mix of things. And so what you've correctly described in the weakness of the party and the Republican side, um, you also see that in, in the Democratic side as the parties lose their ability to have some kind of control to create create this kind of beneficial balance. And so in the Republican Party, it's precisely what you've said. And what's fascinating about the Republican Party, just to take a brief uh, detour, is the number of politicians who've decided that it's that Donald Trump is not a special magician who's pulling off a trick only he can pull off. 
you're seeing some politicians who have ambitions for the future starting to to not just support Donald Trump, but ape the kinds of behaviors and things he says as a route to their own self-aggrandizement. And again, that's the that's not the party making any choices. Finally, one quick point on the Republican Party and how it has no control over the the nominee. The Republican Party created did an autopsy after the 2012 election and said that it had to change in a number of different ways. They made one single. Uh, suggestion on policy, was, which was that Republicans should support comprehensive immigration reform. And the next nominee and successful president of that party had the 180 degree opposite opinion from what the party approved opinion on immigration was to give you some indication of how meaningless parties are in the process. I just want to make one other point, which is that we also see, and the UK is a prime example of this, what happens when a party elite, when a party insiders maintain control of party decision-making apparatus and the the disastrous performance of the Labor Party under Jeremy Corbyn is the the evidence of this. Here you have the the kind of party, the whole party infrastructure selected Corbyn, and yet Corbyn came to represent a view that was totally untenable within the actual desires of the British electorate. So the the party elite insider choosing, I mean, it's not quite the same as smoke-filled room because it's a vote by all the party members, so it's not quite the same. But the the party elite choice was also a disaster in that case. Emily, are you moved at all by the people who are making the case for Klobuchar under on these grounds? Well, I really liked Klobuchar in the moments after the last debate when she was just sitting around, I think, on CNN. And it just seemed like she was in this moment of, I don't have a whole lot to lose. She seemed so much more normal and candid than uh, I'd seen other candidates be. So I had this moment where my heart warmed to her for that. But I mean, I don't know. I I feel like Biden and Bernie Sanders are leading the polls. They have been consistently doing so. They're offering pretty different policy visions, different cases for electability, both of which are kind of plausible. That's where the polls have been from the beginning, and they haven't really changed that much. And so this sort of casting about for another alternative reflects the weaknesses and the kind of caveat emptor the party, people in the party are watching the party are having, especially because of the drive to defeat President Trump. But I don't think Klobuchar is like really going anywhere. She raised a little more money, but, you know, I it just feels to me like a sort of casting about. And also, it is true that if you're following these races, it gets boring. Like, you need some new kind of shiny object to look at to change the story. And so there's a degree to which Klobuchar is just a kind of confected example of that. I, I don't have any real brief for Klobuchar. I mean, she seemed very smart whenever I've seen her speak. In person, I've met her a couple of times. She's very winning in person. The the one point I will rise in her defense around is I thought the stories about her being a bad boss were so incredibly unfair and sexist. And I'm sure she's a bad boss. I'm I'm sure she's a mean, vicious boss. There would not be all those stories if she wasn't. But it is also true that people who work with Biden say that Biden is a bad boss. Sanders, think reputationally, not a great boss. There's a way in which... The, the comb, eat salad with a comb is a, st- a phrase that is going to be stuck to her for life that is unfair and that wouldn't be there if she were a man. Eat and salad with a comb being a story about Amy Klobuchar asking a staffer for a fork, then when there was no fork, getting super pissed and eating the salad with her comb. It's a cheap shot. She's a tough person. She's a tough boss. And for that, um, 
that slander, or I guess it's not slander because it's true, it's probably true, for that to, to hang around her neck seems grotesquely unfair. I think you're, I think you're right. There is a, a gender issue here. But more to the point, what do we mean when we – why is it necessarily bad to be a, a, a mean boss? I mean, um, you know, Dwight Eisenhower, who was very good at the presidency in all of these ways that people didn't appreciate at the time, was known as the terrible Mr. Bang because of his um, – that was the White House name for him – because of his temper, temper. I mean, what are we really saying about – the skills for the presidency, or is it just being used as a dismissive thing? Like, what's the what's the ultimate thing? Are we are we about to have a big, huge, long discussion about the proper management techniques of the presidency? Because I am on for that, but that's not what people are really anxious to have. They're trying to find a thing, as they've done with lots of other candidates, and their whether they do it with age or something else, that just allows them to immediately dismiss um, a candidate. But in my futile effort to make presidential campaigns better. I'd love a long discussion of what some of these things that you perfectly described, David, as a as a kind of limiting get rid of her out of the conversation thing. What do we really mean when we're highlighting that idea? Well, aren't we afraid that if someone has a terrible temper and is mean to their employees that it suggests they're going to rule by fear, that that's not as effective a way to manage an organization? Right. There are like is a fallout and cost from yep. that and you turn people against each other inside your organization and – give people reasons to want to undermine you. I mean, uh, totally 100%. Yes, and that's really interesting because what because what because in the presidency you kind of, because it's such a blunt instrument and because you have to move in and you're not given very much time to figure out the place and and the bureaucracy, which I say not in a pejorative sense, but I say it's just a big massive thing. It's an enormous organization. And some of the people who've been successful in making organizational change have done so by being kind of blunt and unpleasant. Now, is that the best way to make the thing move? I don't know. But that's a really interesting conversation because clearly the incumbent uh, president manages in, in a bullying way. On the other hand, if you're a person who believes in his maximalist position on immigration, his bullying ways have gotten you results that you like. And the same would be true on the courts and taxes and other things. So I I would just love to have that conversation rather than the sort of um, theater review way in which um, her temper is used to make to just dismiss her. The two other quick just very two other quick points. I think the Klobuchar is not about Klobuchar. It's about pundits deciding that the target that that uh, Democrats need to hit is a general election target in seven states that are in, you know, many of them are in the Midwest. And so what they're saying is looking ahead to that target, not the target for the primary and who's going to win it, but in the ultimate race against Donald Trump, it's going to be about these states and that her characteristics are successful for that state. The reason I bring that up is that this primary debate is always a debate about what's the shape of the final target. And everybody chooses a different shape of the final target. And then everybody has to finally agree what has to agree on what the final target is and nobody quite has yet. And so I think the Klobuchar discussion is also about this uncertainty about that. And then the final point is if we realize that general elections are about negative partisanship and that basically what Donald Trump is going to do in a time-tested technique is basically make the Democrats seem objectionable and completely out of the mainstream. Uh, it's it's interesting to sort the candidates in that fashion, each party making the other seem much more objectionable. And so which candidate, which Democratic candidate sets up best if that's the case? Emily, what's going on with my beloved Elizabeth Warren? Why Why is Sanders, as you say, so firmly locked with most of the same policy positions, yet is much older, uh, 
much more infirm, much you know, less appealing, if you're me, at least. Uh, why, why is she not doing well? Well, I think actually it's important that Sanders came back from his heart attack and doesn't seem infirm. Like he's been charging ahead with his usual vigor. Um, and he has this really loyal core group of supporters. It seems like in retrospect, maybe Warren had this kind of lift from a lot of positive press coverage. And then as she kind of struggled to talk about how she was going to pay for Medicare for all, seemed to be evasive in those moments. I'm not sure how much the voters were paying attention to that, but the punditocracy cared about that and started dinging her. And I don't know, maybe that um, surge she had in the polls was based on not like the sticky loyalty that some Biden and uh, the the candidates like Biden and Sanders have been able to show with their loyalists. I'm not totally sure. I also wonder if in the whole electability conversation, the fact that she's a woman and that people are worried about other voters' sexism is having some effect on her. I I mean, I'm casting around for explanations here, but it does seem like Sanders has this much more sticky support than she's proved to have. May I raise a question for the two of you to answer, which is um, Matt Iglesias wrote the case for Bernie Sanders at Vox. Writers are taking on the case of making the case for the remaining candidates. And in his piece, and I'm I'm going to de-link from it now so I don't mischaracterize it, but in his piece, he basically argues that Sanders is, is a more wily legislator and inside game player than his campaign persona would suggest. Because if you listen to what he says on the campaign about he's going to create a national movement and it's going to change Washington – We've it's it's way out on the furthest end of not just policy, but also kind of the way politics works in America. Barack Obama had it was a pretty popular president and got a lot of people to come to his rallies. And even he wasn't able to convert that into power in uh, in Washington. What what Iglesias suggests, perhaps, is that basically Bernie Sanders knows that he's going to ultimately have to work within the system and that since he's done it before that makes him a good candidate so the question i ask you two is is it okay if a candidate let's say bernie sanders talks about things in their most dreamy fashion but knows basically in his heart of hearts it ain't ever going to be that way um and that that's not a sign of duplicity well it is a sign of duplicity but it's a beneficial sign of duplicity and that you want candidates basically to know that you have to sell things at their most attractive, but also have the realism to know how to get it actually done. I feel like duplicity is a funny word for this because another way to think about it is maybe, I mean, okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. It's based on his whole career. Bernie really does believe in free college and Medicare for all and raising taxes to pay for it. And he just... Well, no, I'm, I, no, 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 I'm not saying it's not the policy positions. It's the whether they can ever get through and whether his method that he's explained in the course of his campaigns for how it's all going to happen by this creating this great national movement that's going to change Washington uh, from its from its ways going forward, that that's. That- but I don't think he would concede that they can never get through. I think he would say, like, the only way this is possibly ever going to happen is if we call for a revolution and I get in office and I get my best shot. And, like, I don't think, you know, does he see the obstacles as, like, a rational, intelligent politician? I'm sure he does. But I don't think he's willing to concede the notion that, like, this is all total pie in the sky. It'll never get anywhere. I think he would point to other unlikely moments in American politics where 
where, you know, the civil rights movement, like that wasn't poll tested. It wasn't popular. People succeeded anyway. And he would say, like, you you have to we have to take the first step in order to maybe get further down this road. Right. Well, I guess my point is if if the, if you accept the frame that, that Matt was using, we're nowhere near what the political situation was like in the mid-60s. Uh, that kind of change can't happen when you've got, you know, Mitch McConnell and the filibuster used in the way it is and so forth and so on. But I think at the end of the day, you're probably right, which is, okay, if I'm going to have any shot at all, the more humans behind me I have pushing for this you know, large thing, even when we fall short, it'll be a hell of a lot better than the status quo. I think what's funny about Matt's case is that Sanders isn't running as a pragmatist who, you know, worked with Republicans on veterans affairs. He's <laughs> running on revolution. Yeah. And so the notion that like we're just voters, moderate Democrats, oh, don't worry about that man behind the curtain because he really takes the, you know, bipartisan or whatever, the Democratic votes when he needs to. And like he'll it's just not how he's presenting himself. And so I think that it's an odd argument to make that like, oh, we shouldn't worry about these big radical plans because that's his whole platform. Emily, what is happening with impeachment? Oh, my God. Uh, I was about to take a sip of You were waiting for some big plots wind up. You wanted me to tell you what was happening with impeachment. And now I have to talk. No such luck. Uh, What is happening with impeachment? The Senate trial has still not begun, as I'm sure our listeners know. The House, as we're taping, is still withholding the articles of impeachment hoping for maybe some leverage and trying to change the Senate procedures, get the Senate to call witnesses. No indication that Mitch McConnell is going for this. I also think that the um, Iran strike uh, by President Trump kind of put a pause on all of this and um, is now kind of part of the politics of the timing of how all this unwinds. So we're kind of in this pause moment. The most interesting development is that John Bolton, President Trump's former national security advisor, who says he has exciting, important facts that nobody has heard yet, announced that he had decided he would uh, comply with a subpoena from the Senate and testify at the impeachment trial if he is called. I don't know what this play is. Bolton could at any moment hold a press conference tell us what he knows. He could also ask the House or the House on its own could ask him to testify. There's no special reason this has to happen before the Senate. Um, Adam Schiff's committee could just call him up. I don't imagine that McConnell will call Bolton. One does wonder about the timing of all of this. Bolton is thrilled by um, the killing or the, the United States killing of General Soleimani in Iran. And so It seems a little strange to imagine that this is the moment that he's going to betray President Trump with his exciting testimony. Maybe he would do exactly the opposite. Despite his disdain for Trump, he is, after all, a lifelong, pretty loyal Republican. So hard to know what all this means. Um, I don't imagine we're going to see him take a star turn in front of the Senate, but who knows? I, I found the excitement on the left about Bolton's statement that he would honor a Senate subpoena so bizarre and mm-hmm. misplaced. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing at all in John Bolton's career to suggest he's someone who's going to go in and knife President Trump in public in that way. Nothing whatsoever. He is somebody, he's a party guy. He he wants to support the party. Um, I think, I actually, I mean, you know, I actually think there, there's, you, it's more easy to think that Trump 
wag the dog and and some part of Trump's Iran motivation is actually, oh, that'll let's just mollify. Let's mollify uh, Bolton while we're at it, because knowing that knowing that um, Bolton is such an Iran hawk. So either he doesn't want to testify and knows that he doesn't have to testify, but he just wants to virtue signal that he would testify. That's option one or option two. He would testify, but not say anything that's particularly going to hurt the president it might not help him, but definitely not going to say anything that's going to be super damning. So, so the level of excitement versus actuality there seemed way, the ratio seemed way, way off. I had the same reaction. And then as I've been trying to condition myself recently, I realized I was just reactioning, re- reaction. I was just reacting to behavior on Twitter, which I've decided is a weird way to behave in life because Twitter is not representative of anything, but I nevertheless share what you're saying. It was a f- weird, strange glee. If for no other reason, then it just was totally uninformed. That all seems weird. He's got a book coming out next week, year, which means, uh, since I do too, um, it made me first think, okay, who is the bigger book buying public? The um, supporters of the president from whom he also would like to raise money for his pack and who are big fans of his from years of appearing on Fox are they the people more likely to buy his book or are the people who don't like the president uh, more likely to buy his book? And and if you use that as your single limiting frame for what his strategy is here, how does that give you an insight into what he's doing? This is all very, very deep into the realm of speculation. He also didn't tell Mitch McConnell until right before, left a message at McConnell's office essentially saying he was going to say what he was going to say. So that seems a little strange. Didn't tell the White House. Um it all just seems like a weird mystery of running on stage at this moment. And also, by the way, what could he say that would actually change the shape of things in the impeachment proceedings? It doesn't look like he's going to be able to. They're going to let him testify in the Senate, by the way. I mean, I understand that you're speculating, John, but I'm glad you brought all of that up because there's a part of me that just feels like John Bolton just wants a big burst of attention. And it is related to books and book sales and his own sense of importance and celebrity. And I mean, this is something I wonder about all the time with Rudy Giuliani, Bill Barr. These are old people who were off stage and are now very much on the center stage. And maybe there's just something really tantalizing about continuing to generate headlines. Yes, and to be psychically rewarded. That's the other piece. It's not enough to generate headlines. It's the thing that we forget about Barr and Giuliani is that as much as Barr and Giuliani get absolutely thwacked on the left and on left Twitter and in the New York Times and so forth, they are receiving validation left and right, or actually right and right (laughs) and also right, from the world in which they swim. And so in the world in which they swim, presumably Rudy Giuliani is not you know, is not being mocked and derided, but rather he's being praised and affirmed for his stalwart support of the president, his creativity, his energy, his aggression. And so that feels good. And so it's not merely attention. It's attention with positive affirmation, which is is a pretty heady drug. Right. And when you think about it that way, it just seems so unlikely that Bolton is going to destroy himself with Republican right wing book buying voters by uh, taking down President Trump. I mean, David started by saying everything John Bolton has believed that in his life, Donald Trump has done a very good job of supporting John Bolton, one of his earliest jobs was working in the Reagan Justice Department, pushing very strongly for the nomination of Robert Bork against a lot of what used to be called moderate Republicans um, who were in uh, the Reagan administration. And Bolton was was successful, obviously, in getting Bork 
uh, into the into the, uh, the you know getting him nominated. He obviously didn't get confirmed. But so on the judge's question, the president has done quite well on the spending for defense. He's done quite well. I mean, so for his entire and and Iran, as David mentioned, he's doing what John Bolton would like. So. It would seem strange, um, extremely strange, that a president who is delivering on every possible thing that a Republican of John Bolton's kind, with a possible exception of flirtation with getting out of Syria and, and Afghanistan, would then suddenly turn on him and be forever then known as the person who either A, turned on him, or B, if he's got something really uh, a real bombshell. B became the person who cha- is the John Dean of this impeachment, essentially the person who changed the the uh, narrative, which right now looks like a an easy acquittal for the president in the Senate. Emily, we talked about this last week. We're a week on. Who is enjoying the waiting game more? Is it Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell? I do think. I mean, just let me just give my thought for one second. Uh, the more I thought about it this week. Nancy Pelosi, the House Democrats have done their constitutional duty. They have done their job. They have impeached the president. They have presented compelling evidence that he committed impeachable offenses. They have impeached him for those impeachable offenses. They have created a record around it. They brought in witnesses. They should just stop messing around and let the Senate do its job, even if they know the Senate is going to make a mockery of it, even if they know the Senate is not going to offer a fair and honest trial. That's not that is not their responsibility. They know it's no longer their it's it's the responsibility of the other august legislative body that the United States has. And the voters can see the Senate make a mockery of it and then can, you know, can judge them accordingly. But I do think that Pelosi at this point has has uh, I don't think she has any leverage. And I also think it's making it all look kind of weird that they did what they were supposed to do. Now, let the other body do what it's supposed to do, even if it does it poorly. Yeah, that seems right to me. I feel like this is going to wind itself down yeah. quickly, or it should. As as of Thursday morning, there was some uh, uh, fibrillations in the force on the Senate side. You had Dianne Feinstein and and a few other Democratic senators saying, okay, let's get this sent over here and let's get this thing going. You also had some uh, Democrats in the House in, let's call them Trump districts, swingy kind of uh, House districts who were saying, all right, let's send it over. And then you had Mitch McConnell making efforts to kind of move forward even without Pelosi. So it seems like it's going to get going maybe as early as next week. And then it'll sit for six days. The senators can't talk with each other, can't look at their phones. It, it will be probably unpleasant for a lot of them at a, just a, basically at a human level to sit still and have to listen for that period of time, which they almost never do in their lives. I mean, who does in the modern life? Any of, any of us. John, I cannot remember. You and I both covered the Clinton impeachment trial, which was also witness list, but it was not. It took time. What is it you do in a witless wit, witness <laughs> <In a> witless <laughs> Senate trial? In a witless trial, in a witless Senate trial. Um, well, don't you hear from the um, the managers, uh, the impeachment managers in the House? They make their case, and then the defenders of the president make their case and then the senators can send up uh, written questions to both sides so uh, then there's the answering of that which takes place and uh, so it's a lot of you know a lot of talking it's basically like an argument everyone makes yeah. their own argument but without it being the questions being interrogated in a factual way because there's no there are no fact witnesses huh. I mean there could be right. well it'll be interesting right I mean there could be but there there won't be um, I mean, there could be fact witnesses. That would be perfectly um, that would be a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But um, but there won't be. Let's go to cocktail chatter. 
when uh, you are gotten off work as a juror in a trial, going around the corner, have a drink at the bar by the courtroom, and you can't really talk about the trial because you're, you're, you shouldn't talk about the trial you're part of. What are you going to be chattering about, Emily Bazelon? I went to New Orleans in November to report a story about juries that will um, run in the Times Magazine next week. And it was the first time I'd ever gone and done some reporting with a photographer. It was so interesting. Um, and I, and I, Larry Fink, the photographer who um, I was working with, was amazing. He also had this fabulous assistant, John O'Ratman, who's a photographer in his own right. It changed my process, um, both because the photographer, like, they were there, part of the reporting, but also because I had these amazing photographs to look at as I was writing the story. And um, it just was so interesting to me to, like, I, I've been a journalist for a long time. I guess it's kind of surprising I never got to do this before. But I've been thinking a lot about the power of photography in journalism, which is, like, in some ways a completely banal point, but it was really brought home to me by working with Larry and Jono. When I was a cub reporter at the Washington City Paper, there was a staff photographer, still there, Darrow Montgomery, an incredible photographer. And Darrow would come out reporting because City Paper was slack on resources. We were light on resources. So he'd come out with me if I was writing a story. And it, I learned so much just from watching him work and that he he had this relaxing effect on the subjects of people I was writing about. It was great having a photographer not in every situation, but when you have someone who is wise and careful and and themselves inquisitive in a in a different way than you, it can be really, really delightful. Absolutely. And the idea of like portraying do telling a story as a photo essay as well as a narrative um, or analytic piece, just anyway, exciting for me. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? Well, I feel like I now have to add my photographer anecdote, which is when I started at Time, you always traveled with a photographer, and particularly in political campaigns, the the magazine pooler was with the magazine photographer. And so after some short period of time, I would I learned to always ask them what they were seeing when they were taking shots of candidates and of rallies and of um, because their attention and focus is on what cannot be said, but which is sometimes far more powerful than um, what's actually being said, particularly in politics. Um, and now at 60 Minutes, where you work with these cameramen who are artists who've been doing it for 30 years, what they see when an interview is happening, what a person does with their face when they're asking questions, when they're responding, when they're listening to a question. I mean, they see the entire landscape of the human uh, being with a with a kind of an acute focus um, that is uh, that's fantastic. Um, it's why they're so good. And so I uh, I envy that experience, Emily. Um, and I got to um, enjoy that experience myself when I worked on what I'm my cocktail chatter, which is on the uh, my piece for sixty minutes this Sunday is about Venice. A few months ago, I mysteriously wasn't on the show uh, right after the the considerable flooding, second biggest flooding in the history or recorded history of Venice and went through the city and um, it's a piece about what that flooding and then the flooding that is now a part of the new normal of Venice. It was that there was that one day on the 12th of November that was particularly awful. But then when I was there, the flooding was continuing um, what it's doing to this jewel of a city. And then what, of course, that means um, for global climate change, because it's it's not just Venice um, that's having to deal with these. What's happening in Australia is a part of this story. What happened in the Amazon and California. And this is the sea level rise part of it. But 
uh, it's a story about Venice and what Venice means for the entire planet. That's this Sunday, John? That's this Sunday. Check your local listings. Great. My chatter is about a wonderful Washington Post story that has put uh, an idea in my head. The headline is, people are seeing cats while high out of their minds. These are their stories. And it's the movie Cats is a disaster at the box office. It's been panned. It's surreal and terrible. Taking this musical, which I loved as a child, just full confession, I really did love it, uh, and turning it into a movie with these humans in cat fur has caused the world to laugh and be shocked. But there is this category of people who are getting real pleasure out of it by getting extremely high and then going to it. And this is a story which they interview a whole bunch of people who have done it, and it is hilarious. The story is so, so funny. I strongly recommend reading it. Some people were terrified by it. There's one woman who described vomiting four times, but ultimately understanding the film on a deep level. Uh, When another person said, when Judy Dench turned and looked me directly in the eyes to let me know that a cat is not a dog, I was terrified. Someone else described how she couldn't get past the mismatched proportions of the cats in the film while she was high because sometimes they were cat-sized, sometimes they were human-sized, and sometimes they appeared to be the size of mice, and that confounded her. It's a very funny match of subject, which is a surreal, bad movie, and and people's stoner thoughts. I'm now intending to go get high and go see cats. That's what I'm looking forward to doing in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to join me, let me know. Also, if you want to join me, just a small thing. Uh, if you're in D.C. this Sunday, I think GabFest listeners know I'm a huge fan of group singing. And there's a, a something which I think is relatively new to D.C. called the D.C. Sing-Along. And there is a Sunday D.C. Sing-Along in Adams Morgan at the Cheshire. So if you go to dcsingalong.com, you can check it out. Uh, I'm going to be there. I'm so looking forward to it. Emily, you should come down and join me to sing along. You oh, like my God. I wish I could do that. We need a New Haven version of that. Listeners, you have sent us excellent chatters, excellent, excellent chatters in 2020. Your new decade of chatters are great. You've been tweeting them to us at at SlateGabFest. And uh, this week, Barbara, who is at Lucky Penny Make, sent us a uh, listener chatter, which is actually a forward of another tweet thread from Jessica Price at Delafina777, which is a tweet thread about how cities one reason why everyone's allergies seem to be getting worse in big cities is that cities are planting basically only male trees and there aren't enough female trees which trap the pollen and that's a reason why people's allergies are getting worse and it's it's just this hilarious and disturbing fact that that when arborists and in who are planting for big locations or planting, they tend to plant male trees because I guess male trees don't fruit. And so you don't have to deal with the messiness of fruit. But the result is you have all this extra pollen and um, it's tree tree sexism. So check out this tweet thread around tree sexism. Awesome. <laughs> that's our show for today. <laughs> the the Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Melissa Kaplan helped me out here in D.C. I'm guessing Ryan McAvoy helped out Emily in New Haven, and I'm guessing Alan Pang helped out John in New York City. You'll correct me if I'm wrong immediately. It was Dustin up here in uh, in New York City. Oh. Dustin Gervais. You mercifully let Alan have the day off. How nice. I hope Alan is out, out partying somewhere. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio, June Thomas, managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We will talk to you next week. Thank you.
Hello, Slate Plus. John and Emily have both watched The Morning Show, of which I've only seen one episode. But The Morning Show is a show that is on Apple and it's about a morning show. Discuss. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed the show. I do not think it is great television. I completely ate it up nonetheless. The premise very quickly is basically a Matt Lauer story. So um, Jennifer Aniston plays the co-host of a guy, the actor Steve Carell, who right away gets fired for sexual misconduct. We don't know exactly what he's done in the beginning, but um, we get the sense he's abused his power on the show in some way. And then from there spins out this plot. I'll give away one other part of it that happens pretty early, which is that um, Jennifer Aniston kind of impulsively chooses as her new co-host, a younger woman played by Reese Witherspoon, who's a kind of cantankerous West Virginian, like, either shot in the arm um, or, like, disaster, depending on your view of the journalism she produces and her kind of challenge to the show. And I guess, John, one of the reasons I was so excited to talk with you about this is obviously you've been on a morning show, and so you have some sense of whether the portrayal of the culture, not like setting aside the sexual misconduct, but Mm -hmm. also just the culture on the show, whether that felt real to you. And then I was also just so interested in the sexual dynamics there. It's pretty complex. Like the show does more than I think a lot of portrayals to get beyond the like very basic idea of um, some terrible predatory man, only one kind of bad misconduct. So yes, there are predatory men, but there are also women who are asserting their power or trying to use their sexuality to assert some power in a way that was not the like only kind of victim predator dynamic. And I wonder what you Uh, made of that. Well, I guess I have to give a little bit of a disclosure, which is to say that... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.